0: My name is Andrew Sweeney. Me and Tom are in parallax, and uh, this is the IDW, the Intellectual Deep Web Extravaganza, our second, um, our second uh, installment. And uh, we get we get together, a, 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 you know, a couple times a year with a bunch of philosophers, and 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 talk shit together. That's basically the idea. So, um, so on my left is, is Thomas. Maybe Thomas, you can you can um, introduce yourself and then pass it. On to the next person.
1: Yeah. Good evening. My name is Thomas Hamelrich. Uh, I am a researcher in machine learning and in bioinformatics, and I'm very interested in um, I'm, I'm very interested in the effect of uh, modern digital networks and AI and things such as that. The interaction with the ancient human, and I'm particularly interested in the anthropology of the French thinker René Girard. That would it. That would. Uh, be me in a nutshell. So, how about you, Tom? Me? Oh, I'm just Tom.
2: Here's Tom. <laughs> that's
0: all, only Tom. Okay, that's just Tom. He's just a guy.
2: Um, no, it's like I'm, um, I'm doing parallax with uh, with Andrew, a publishing house in Germany for you know cool books, meta modern books, integral books. I'm a writer myself. I just finished a quasi erotic philosophical novel, and so yeah, that's me.
3: Why quasi? Why not fully erotic? what's stopped you?
0: It's fully erotic. I've read it. He's just saying that. Oh, so
3: that's that's <laughs> just the game. That's already the novel. to you know, yeah. like create a little distance.
2: No, the uh, the the superficial structure is erotic, and the deep structure is philosophical, and so it's like two levels that play off each other, and so it's not it's not full fledged pornographic. That's what I want to say. I'm Already excited.
3: He's really excited.
0: Okay, Daniel, how about you? Daniel Fraga.
3: Hello, I'm Daniel. I'm a conversation designer, meaning I write and design conversations that people have with chatbots and with voice assistants. Um, This year I've written this book called Ontological Design. And right now I'm really interested in how to uh, empower design with psychoanalysis, especially because the affordances of Uh, AI just sort of, are are, I feel like, are pushing us into this direction. Um, So if you ever wanted to be at the intersection of design and brainwashing, probably meet me there. (sighs) Or at least wanting to. And uh, I would say that that's it for me.
4: Mr. Alex Ebert.
5: Who is Hello, moving. Uh, my name is Alex Ebert and i um, looking for good internet. Uh, I'm a musician and, and um, yeah and um, uh, thinking a lot about um, excess and absence in general uh, which sounds super oblique but um, it's actually Is oblique it's 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 i see it everywhere so it's kind of nowhere and i'm glad to be here
0: and finally we have daniel from the power couple og rose
6: thank you mr sweeney so i'm daniel og rose opperman donna rose we write together fiction uh philosophy we put out a book recently called thoughts and book one of the truism and the rational uh, series called The uh, Conflict of Mind. And we live on a farm, chase children, and run a wedding venue, and uh, try to live the dream to the best of our abilities. So it's wonderful to, uh, to be here. Thank you, sir.
0: Okay, wonderful. So perhaps we could start with the first ideas that were presented, and that was like this absence and um, excess. Do you want to elaborate that a, a, a little bit on that uh, Alex since we're here to talk ideas and what is what is why are yeah, you obsessed with these particular ideas of absence and uh, sure. excess and i have also been thinking about uh uh Thomas's uh cuz we Thomas had a great talk the other day about ritual time and ordinary time and the differences yes. uh, uh, between time and uh, I I'm wondering if there's a there's a bit of a crossover there
5: I think there is absolutely <clears throat> Um, uh, the way I would interface it I missed that talk and I'm really bummed I'm going to watch that and I love the Hammers uh, Girardian devotion um, th- I've been thinking a lot about his uh, I, I, Thomas I think your notion of ritual time and are you calling it ordinary
1: time? What are you calling it? Traditional time? What's the other one? Um, yeah but, well but there's actually the, a guy called uh, uh, Mircea Eliade who talked about um the profane time versus ritual time. Okay. So, but I, I'm I'm kind of like reformulating it, it a bit uh, because because I think that the opposition is more um, between times of prohibition and times of ritual. So I call it times of prohibition, times of ritual. But it's, it's very close to profane time and and uh, and and, okay. and sacred time.
5: Well, that's that's perfect because prohibition is a limit, right? At, at least this is the way I interpret in terms of uh, excess and absence. So prohibition time would be where the limit is still there, where the limit is sort of hasn't been accessed. The limit is still sort of enforcing its limitation. And we are living within the limit. And we're afraid to access the limit. We're afraid to um, rub ourselves up against the limit. And so the limit is still there's still sort of differential. Uh, elements within the scope of the limitation. So one way to just think about it is, uh, if I made my whole screen, uh, if if I went like this, right? I was like, oh, there's a finger living inside my screen. Here's another finger. And uh, the limit is you can only have so many fingers inside there, but then all of a sudden I start to access it. And there's so many fingers that suddenly the fingers go absent. So there's this relationship between excess and absence. By accessing the limitations of the screen we have here, suddenly you can't see the, the, the particularities. And to me, the ritual time is when we have accessed a limit to the point where the particularities of thought disappear. You could think of the moment of coming or um, you know the moment of excitement when you suddenly go absent. You have such a saturation of thought or such a saturation of activity that suddenly the mind sort of absents itself and those are the ritualistic sort of moments for me. I I juxtapose ritual to tradition Um, so for me it's traditional time, ritual time, but but yeah so that's sort of the relationship between the, for me, between excess and absence and ritual time and uh, and profane time or prohibition uh, time. Uh, Once the The prohibitions are really there as limits to be accessed. Um, and that's why there's always this oscillation between prohibition and ritual, and prohibition and ritual, and the new limit reveals itself. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, common space there.
2: So, a football game has its limitations, right? Because it has certain rules and certain plays and whatever. And so, there's the magic that happens and the uh, Ritual, the sacred space, when something new emerges, something that you don't expect. Is that, is that what you mean? Or uh, Well, in, in, in one sense, yeah.
5: I mean, uh, in, the, in the case that you just presented, it's like if you had the rules of the game uh, and then everyone started breaking the rules and they're breaking the rule here. You've, we've all seen games get out of control, right? Where the refs just starts handing out red cards and suddenly the game erupts into a fight. That would be ritual time. That would be the accessing the limitations of the rules. But there's another sort of ritual time that happens all the time in games where players get into the zone, and the limitations, essentially, are the limitations between the interior or the interiority of a player, the interior mind and the exterior, where suddenly the division or the, the, the limiting factor between a player and his environment suddenly disappears and they become one with their environment. The ball is an extension of them. And suddenly that interior exterior, the limit between interior exterior is accessed and the mind sort of suddenly sublimates and one is just with their environment and, you know, and, and that we call the zone or whatever. So that's a moment of, of accessing the you know, excess and then the absence right. of thought, Ab- the absence of decision where we're just sort of, we're just doing all of a sudden
0: no yeah it seems like if if you could call the football game a a sacred a sacred space a sacred ritual right there are moments when there is where where that is profaned right and that's when 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 and then then there's moments where there's sacred sacred right maybe that's what the excess is where where the, the players suddenly can do things that seem kind of he's superhuman in some kind of a way like he can you're looking at it, and your jaw is dropping out, and you're saying, "How did how did he do that thing?" Um, yeah, I,
5: I mean, know. when you're thinking, when you're in that state of fear, what's interesting is that you know the zone. Apparently, according to Bravaki and studies and whatnot, the zone requires some sense of uh, consequence and fear in the mind. Uh, so rock climbers are always in the zone because they have to be; uh, otherwise, they'll fall. Um, when you're in the game and the pressure's on, you're more likely to get in the zone. And there's some, there's some exertion of that exterior force as a limit that creates this sort of like saturation uh, within the interior. But I mean, there's all sorts of limits. There's limits within limits and limits within the limits of the limits. And, you know, we probably wouldn't like to see a game excess the limits of the rules because then it would just be chaos on the field, might turn into a riot or something. But still, the subjects would be absent within that excess, right? The subjects would be almost in their sort of zone as they're rioting and sort of leaving their bodies um, in their sort of interiority, anyway, yeah. That's the, by, by the way, I just point out that like when we talk about, oh, sublation is so wonderful or to be, to, to reach that limit and go into the zone. Well, there's not a whole lot different between the fundamentalist and the, you know, the, the architect of an amazing goal who's in the zone. Both are self absent. So the idea that like this ablated state is somehow superior is false. It's just different sorts of self absenting
0: Hey, OG, what's what's coming up for you? I'm I'm I'd like to hear your voice in all this.
6: Oh goodness, I I, I, I should say Daniel, Daniel again. Voice. I called you OG. Okay. No, it's I'm no sorry. issue at all. Also, it's confusing. O.G. Rose, Ockerman Garner, Daniel, and different things. uh, things. But no, I really like what Mr. Ebert said. I don't know if the story is true, uh, but there's a rumor that basketball was started because the janitor one day was looking to uh, figure out how to entertain the students. So he's like, well, let me take this wastebasket, put a hole in the bottom of it, and put it on a a wall or something, and we throw balls for it. So there's a funny sense... And once he broke the rules of what you're supposed to use a race basket for, right? And he hung it on a wall, he did something crazy. And yet, from this new parent, you know, this new schema, suddenly an entire new sport is created, right? Which has its own rules, which has its own structure that then has to be followed so the game that can be possible. So it's interesting that there's this initial breaking of um, the rules or the structure or the givens of how you're supposed to use a weights basket. And then when you do that, an entirely new structure can arise. And right, and then Suddenly, no, 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 you don't play basketball by kicking the ball. Then new rules come into play that are actually set atop something that started because of rules being broken. The issue, it always seems to be, is some sort of sweet spot between breaking the rules, not too much that you can't create a game out of it and it goes into chaos, but not too little to where it's not interesting and fun anymore, right? So you have this funny middle spot that you have to find. And if you go too far in the direction of having strict rules, well, then arguably it's purely safe, you know, because you know the rules, right? know what's going on and then it can be difficult to enter into that zone space and then it can also get boring but then of course if you go um too far in the direction of not having rules it can become chaotic and um on this on the topic it makes me think um because as mr dr Hammerlick was talking about gerard uh and different people at the wonderful presentation the other day and it also brings to mind mr ebert's thinking there was a sociologist who i thought was quite brilliant and uh was the main inspiration between belonging again named philip reef and he talks about the triumph of the therapeutic and he's a legendary Freud scholar, and he's analyzing what he says, how societies all have to find a balance between what he'll call releases and constraints, uh, which I do think overlay with the ritual time and the sacred time and the profane thing. And what he's basically warning is that as of 1950, he's saying, you know, eh, we're having a triumph of the therapeutic, which is release, which is basically pure, um, if I understand the language correctly, ritual time, right, where you're just going to have freedom and liberation and different things like that, which he says in some respects is good. Because in the past, these constraints could generally be oppressive, right? But then if you go too far in the direction where you have an autonomous... There are, uh, autonomous release is the language he uses. So that would be kind of an autonomous Dionysus, for example, right, if we were to use that language that can give rise to a lot a lot of problems. So I think also in this conversation, I'm particularly interested in a lot of the more, dare I say, uh, philosophical sociologists like a Peter Berger, a Dr. Hunter, a Philip Reif. And I actually think there's a lot to be done to overlay them with the thinking Mr. Ebert put forth and also Gerard, uh, because I think Gerard is also from an, as a literary scholar, an analyzing sort of the history of of this thought and how they can feed into that. So those are some thoughts that come to mind to start. Uh, I actually think that field of sociology can be, um, that kind of sociology can be useful for some of the issues that come up in the conversations in this corner of the internet.
2: Mr. Well, Fraga. Interesting what what you said about Dionysian and you didn't say Apollonian, but I think that's the, uh, you know, the polarity Alex, uh, you're talking about. No, You have the constraints of the, and the order of the Apollonian, and out of this you know, in ritual time, and and actually, and Andrew and I we always have like in, in the last week's conversation about hermeticism and occultism and all this stuff, and so you have these rituals, so it's very constrained orderly rituals, and out of this the emergence, the Dionysian is is emerging and should emerge because otherwise the ritual wouldn't be uh, successful in a kind of sense.
6: Well, I'll just add to it, absolutely. So you would align Gibbons with the Apollonian Releases. Uh, Now, now Philip Reeve uses the language of constraint and releases. I actually think it's better to talk about givens and releases because a given is sort of something that you assume that you don't think about. It has a more mathematical language. And I actually think that by Philip Reeve talking about constraints, he um, it's not really how societies experience those givens. It's more of you just wake up and it's everydayness. You just say, go to church because you're a Christian. You just do different rituals. You don't even think about them as imposed upon you. You just kind of follow the direction. Um, Now, the problem is, as I like to talk about a belonging again, the problem of givens is that you can get Hannah Arden's banality of evil, which is just the evil that's part of your everydayness. You just kind of go forth and you don't even think about it. And you just kind of, you know, we're white and there are African-Americans and we're better than them. It's just how it is. It's just given, right? Well, then you get the everydayness of evil and oppression that can occur. But then if you have no givens, then you have the, you're existentially overwhelmed by possibility. People tend to respond poorly to that. They either turn to a totalitarian leader to guide things. They overreact or they get lost in, you know, as Barbeki would talk about it, the meaning crisis, which of course means you have to find a quote-unquote middle. And that brings to my Mr. Cox's presentation, where he's talking about the statues and Camilla, how they're kind of masculine, but also feminine. And they find this interesting blend, how you see in the art between the, uh, the uh, Apollon and the Dionysus. And it seems today, part of the trick is that we have to somehow find that um, balance. But here's the problem, If you choose, if you say, hey, this is the way of life I'm going to live that I believe is going to balance, and balance is a tricky word, but if you grant it to me now, uh, the Dionysus and the Apollyon, well, you know you chose it, right? And you impose it upon yourself so there's almost something inherently arbitrary right there's a risk of that because you know you created that for yourself so how do you have it something more than just sort of a personal configuration that has authority over your life that actually is not just something that you've personally chosen well this is quite difficult now because we have to somehow choose a configuration to live that is not merely an expression of say what we want to do but have it be imposed on us, but then we chose that imposition, right? So there's this quite a tension here for us to today find the balance between the the, uh, the Apollyon and the Dionysus, the given and the release, and then not just feel like even in that givenness, an expression of a certain release. How do we impose that upon ourselves? What does that look like? And I think that's part of the sociological challenge. The advantage of say a tradition, let's say Christianity or any of the major religions is even if you chose it, in the structure of it is plausible belief that it is part of something that is not reducible to your preference, even if it's ultimately not true in some way, right? It at least brings a feeling of a kind of authority or rootedness. So part of the challenge is a kind of restoring of that, or maybe we shouldn't restore that and instead just learn to live with some state of p- more pure Dionysus. But I think Ms. Dr. Hamlick is correct that that can be risky.
0: I'm thinking of the, this book by Chogam Trimpa called The Myth of Freedom. Right, that the idea that 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 there's a tyranny that arises with too much freedom, and that's and that the, if the society is moving towards freedom, it's simultaneously moving towards tyranny, uh, on I, some um, level.
3: If I may uh, take over the terms of the discussion, I think the dichotomy is not so much as a provocation between freedom or constraint, but what is lacking is perhaps a clear understanding of of how desire flows through language, right? Other people's views and desires flow into us via discourse. Uh, the unconscious is the discourse of the other. So when we speak about this, this tension between freedom and, and tyranny or, or constraint, yes, the, these are definitely like from a phenomenological perspective, that's how, it, how it, it appears to us. But, um, might it not be the case that a understanding of this whole thing as 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 linguistic might give us some 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 more knowledge right because even the debate that puts together freedom against constraint is itself already a thing uh it's not that we're outside picking one or the other this debate in itself is already a way of constraining or desiring or making our desire flow through language or making us relate to the discourse of the other. I think that there's something strange in there. Can I respond to that? Yeah. Um,
5: uh, I think that the language of excess and absence really helps here, especially with the relationship between the conscious and unconscious. So for instance, if you think about riding a bike, you're trying to ride a bike, you're conscious of it, it's a problem. And, and you know uh, it's in, the, it's in the, the conscious frame and you're falling and you're trying and you're falling and you're trying and you're falling and you're trying and then suddenly you know how to ride a bike. Now what happens? The knowledge of how to ride a bike goes absent. The whole purpose of the excess effort is to make that mechanism absent and automatic. Now when we talk about sort of you know, that can be sort of related to what, uh, you know, he's saying about freedom. But I think it's better to think of it in terms of excess and absence and language acquisition itself, as Daniel's bringing up, also related to excess and absence. We use a word. I'm learning Spanish right now. Right. It's in my fucking conscious frame until it starts to go absent. I use it to the point of excess. And at that point of excess, it goes absent and matriculates into my unconscious. The unconscious is essentially the excessed absence that which we have done so much that has that it has graduated into absence and automation Um, and in a lot of ways the entire purpose of the consciousness of of the mind is to do things such that they end up being absent and then if we bring that back to tradition and tradition as just just absent-minded sort of we just do this and we do these things out of habit and ritual time is in some ways the the pulling out of that absence and reframing it as an excess that overwhelms the conscious frame and creates ironically yet another absence, which then acts as the next equilibrium of tradition against which we begin to develop new social norms. And so it's the, that's why it's this constant process why we keep, why we keep going and keep challenging ourselves.
4: I'll
6: just that. add.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, go on, go on there. No,
6: I was just going to add that I think the mistake of um, the trying to the therapeutic is indeed using the language of uh, constraints and releases because constraints puts it within a Western framework. That's why I think givens more mathematical is important. And I'll also note that I think what Mr. Ebert is saying is very important. Dr. Nicholas was recently talking about habit in Hegel. where. Habit is a state of a freedom that is exercising to the point where it becomes automatic and then it's more of a determined being. So there's this way in which freedom and habit
3: becomes kind of automatic, but it's a result of freedom. So I think those are useful. So let's let's so I love this language of excess and absence because, first of all, it reminds me of intensities and repetition. Um, and, and I think that it can lead us to understand something which is resignification we see signification of whatever habit, like when you're learning to ride a bike, right? You have certain motor operations of your body that you try and you fail, and you try and you fail. And it gets to a point where they get resignified, signified sublated, right? Into some other neural link between your brain and your body. Um, and that can only come across through excess. So might it be uh, that in order to produce, l- let's put it this way, um, things like, ritual and normal time they exist in society but they're like open containers and the kind of energy that at any given moment is circulating in each of those uh, changes it changes with time the thing that was normal time and that was ritual time two years ago is not the same as it was today because it has gone through a process of resignification through excess through just like turn up the volume a lot and see what happens um or or some kind of intensity operation that has produced the re-signification and, and the revaluation. Um, you know, the beatings make us wise, the, 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 the excess is through, is, provokes in us this, this change in our relationship with the other, which is again, a lot of what, I mean, it, might, it could even be a bit what Lacan means with the enjoyment of the symptom, that Cadell refers to with entering the alien It's, again, re-signifying your relationship to these symbols and thereby to your own desire and enjoyment through these symbols. And that process happens through just, you know, plug a fork into the socket, which is my (laughs) way to summarize absence and excess.
0: I think of all this in mystical language because this is what I study all the time. You know, obviously the, you know, that the the excess is the masculine force, which is just energy flowing, and the uh, and the which is you know in bina and, and Gavora, or whatever they're called, and then the the uh, the absence is just it's just this hole that is consuming everything all the time, and uh, and those are those are happening simultaneously, and we're mediating, you know, we're mediating that, and there's this mediation that happens, and that is that is that is sort of what our consciousness does mediates between um the, ma- the masculine force of complete you know expression and then and then this then then the force of birth which is a, a contraction so it's expansion contraction another way to think about it i'm not sure if i understand the difference like that, that, that i'm not understanding your objection daniel the difference or what you're why you would just see that that isn't isn't freedom or tyranny or what what problem you have with that or I'm, i think i'm missing because something with all this hegelian um language it's an
3: articulation thing i guess because uh when you say this i'm conscious i'm mediating this is masculine this is feminine very neat very tidy you go home you sleep it's easy problem is the way this works is by precisely going through the things uh and and having that excess flip around your theories uh uh you know you what do artists do, right? Painters, they, they, they have these notebooks, they write on them, they, they develop them for years and years and years and then they they burn them. Um, That's a mystical practice as obviously, you know, but I guess that that's a conscious relationship with excess that goes beyond masculine and feminine essentialisms.
0: Hmm. Well, I I would say the masculine is essentializing all the time are the feminine is essentializing and the masculine is destroying that essentialization? The masculine is destroying the container. The feminine is is creating a container, and that that process is. That's how I would see it. How are you doing, Thomas? Do you want to bring some Girardian analysis into this? All this?
1: Um, yeah, I often get a bit bit lost with these um, with these concepts because, so for example, when you talk about the unconscious, it's uh, I mean that seems to to just. Uh, Adopt all kinds of different meanings. You know, are we talking about a Freudian, Freudian, Freudian unconsciousness? Are we talking about Lacanian unconsciousness? So there seem to be other definitions of unconsciousness. No, like it seems that it, it's like uh, uh, kind of developing a habit, so that actually uh, an embodied habit. Like like cycling is now also part of the un- unconscious. So I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting a bit which, lost. Which, which it um, absolutely so that, is that's one thing. So I mean I I, I kind of that's one of the reasons why I stick to this Girardian framework because there I know that I kind of know what these things mean, and um, so I mean there's a lot of Hegel and then Lacan and then this and then that, but um, I think we need to be very precise, uh, very careful that we don't uh, start creating a big word salad with expensive words, right? because that is a that is a, a big part of the 20th century philosophy that is writing very complicated books that are very hard to uh, to understand and then so basically um developing this skill of using these very complicated concepts is basically just a way to to gain status so i'm i'm very skeptical of that and and very uh, yeah i'm very careful with, uh, with with these kinds of things i think that for example hegel I mean I'm not convinced after talking to my friend Kapda last that actually Hegel has a lot of good uh, good ideas and that he's worth studying but I will never read Hegel never I mean this is like this is like the I mean it's like the every meaning is like uh, is like hidden under like 300 layers of very complicated sentences that just run over half a page and um yeah I mean that is a problem in itself if the ideas are not clearly expressed how clear can they really be and this is something that orwell already remarked right if you are talking with, uh, with somebody with a thinker who is yeah. who is spouting ink like an octopus how how clear can the thinking be of that thinker right and this is a this is a um, a practice that started with kant so he started this business of writing very complicated texts with with things that run over the, with it. some some of some of kant's books right they contain sentences that literally Run over more than one page, literally, and Kant is much more readable in English than in 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 German because they clean up Kant very much in the translations, right? So and Hegel, if you if you look at Hegel, the first documents that Hegel uh, that Hegel wrote, they were very easy to understand. So he wrote some stuff about the life of Christ and stuff like that, very very easy. But then he realized that if he wanted to be respected as a philosopher, he had to do the same thing as Kant and that is to be very 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 complicated and opaque and he basically set the standard and after that we had so many people who kept on doing that you know like lacan certainly played that game we had derrida playing that game the postmodernists played that game one of the one of the things i really like about nietzsche is that nietzsche is at least very clear i mean he has a great style right that this uh, that is that is one of the things that I really like about Nietzsche. So in short, maybe a bit of ranting. But you know, I mean, it's very interesting to hear you guys go on about the unconscious here and, and, and the sublation there. But often I, I kind of wonder, like, how many definitions do these things have? Can yeah, I, I,
0: I, I, I had to, I had to, because there was an excess in, in conceptuality, I had to bring in you to hammer in an, an absence there. Uh, so go ahead.
5: Oh, no, I was just gonna say, I think that uh, that's a cool rant, but it doesn't reflect on anything we just talked about. And actually, the description of consciousness that we're referring to is, you know, it's fairly recognized now, that the conscious frame, if we think about the conscious frame, the conscious frame can only contain one thing at a time, one image at a time, everything else is unconscious. That's it. It's very simple. So if we think about what it is, that's
1: you know. So, so is that a, is that the same as is that does that is that like the same as the Freudian unconscious or the Lacanian unconscious or maybe an Hegelian unconscious? So where are you, where are you positioned in that? Where where if I want to read on your precise definition of the unconscious, where do I find it? Do you agree with Freud, with Hegel, with Lacan, well, with some other thinker? I agree. Do you have a kind of a consistent framework to talk about these things? Yeah. Yeah, do, well, which, yeah, which framework is it then? Is it is it the Lacan framework? Is it Freud? Is it somebody else? I mean In there are many people I've who talk about the unconscious. Too.
5: They're all so very it's your very it's different.
1: your personal definition of the unconscious that I should just know about, or what they're all very similar. So I'm assuming you haven't okay. read it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Really? I don't think yeah. so at all. I don't oh, yeah, I don't yeah, think well. the, the unconscious of Lacan is, is, is very it's related to what Freud wrote, no, for entirely, example. If, no, no.
5: Both Lacan and Freud think that the seat of, the, of, the, of being and expression uh, reside, like the, the cogito resides in the unconscious. The unconscious overdetermines all of our actions and then we can get into things about, you know, suppression and neuroses and all those sorts of things. Those are interesting aspects. But if you want a very simple, more scientific, look up predictive mind theory, everything that operates our autonomic nerve system, all that stuff is on unconscious operations. And yeah, and then you can go from there.
1: So, so is it Freud or Lacan or this third thing that you mentioned, or is it everything at the same time? It's not not clear to me, right? I mean, we don't have to go on about this, but for me, I don't really, I don't really know where you are with this unconscious. Is this a Freudian unconscious, a Lacanian unconscious? This is not the same thing, as far as I know. But, Very much not so. I mean, it's interesting to would be interesting to hear maybe some other people's yeah, opinion about this.
5: That they're, they're based on the exact same premise. They're based on the exact same premise that the unconscious overdetermines our actions. That's all. And that's a fact. We know that because we have compulsions that we're not aware about, and, uh, and we behave in ways that we're not necessarily conscious of in our conscious frame. And that's called the unconscious. And those are the actions of the unconscious. Those are the effects of the unconscious. So when we talk about, for instance, mimetic theory, and we talk about memetic drive, and we talk about desire, we're talking about operations of the unconscious and of course the conscious frame no continues. no no i
1: mean now i mean in mimetic theory there is not really this type of unconscious that i can assure yes. you and that's why, there's and no that's freudian unconscious theory, or lacanian unconscious in mimetic theory this is why i bring why this up you know, i mean it seems like it seems like you know you bring this they bring this this these types of concepts up and then everybody kind of uh, rants on it and, 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 uh, and plays around with these con- concepts. But I, I don't really think that anybody agrees on what these concepts mean in these types of discussions. What, what, what you would you about, say that you
5: the unconscious, unconscious is, all the time? When you talk about the image of the corpse, you're talking about something that's persisting in the unconscious. That's not in the conscious frame all the time, over-determining people's behavior. You're talking about something that ends up in the unconscious and is subtly affecting people. You talk about unconsciousness all the
1: time. Well, actually in mimetic theory, it's more like a, an ambiguity and like a effect that uh, you can you can kind of admire somebody but also see that person as a rivalry. And that's it's more like at different time points rather than some kind of some kind of um, let's say, huge thing that is in the background that determines your your behavior. So it's not not really like that actually. It's more like an incompatibility. It's like that you pick up, uh, desires from other people that are inherently incompatible and so so this kind of like an, an a kind of a battle between these things but this is a very different different it's it's very different from from how freud and certainly how lacan would think would talk about the unconscious and i think that this is this is kind of important to 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 realize that when you use these concepts we probably don't agree about what they mean do you think that everyone
5: is aware of their mimetic desire, mimetic drive? And if they're not, whatever that is, what do you call that? What do you call the lack of awareness about one's behavior?
1: Well, well you certainly, you're certainly not aware of, of uh, that you pick up these, uh, these desires from other people, but you're certainly aware of your thoughts and of, about your emotions.
5: Yeah, but what about that part where you're not aware? What do you call that? That's called the unconscious. Thomas. <laughs> it means you're not conscious
1: of it. Yeah, I, I can. I can. Uh, yes, you keep so you keep saying that. But it seems to me that, up, that you use you this as a huge as a, as a huge container that that can just contain anything. So how does what that do is that should I think about this? So what what why? Name? Why is it there? Why, why is that unconscious there? For example,
0: you're talking about the purpose of the unconscious, right? You're saying what is the purpose of this concept? if If it's so obvious?
1: Because I, 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 whatever I, I, is I, not
0: conscious is not conscious. <clears throat> so it would be. Yeah, but let,
1: let somebody else take over. I, I think I just made the point that for me, this is not clear at all what people mean when they say things like the unconscious. I mean, when I talk to a Lacanian and he, he says like the unconscious, then I kind of know what that means. You know, I've read Lacan and I have an idea what that means, the unconscious, you know, with Markov chains of, of signifiers and, and, and attached meanings. And so, so I have kind of an idea what that means. If you talk to a Freudian, then you also have an idea of what the unconscious means. But when it is, just comes up in in a conversation like here, and there's just there's just this this kind of like, I mean, I, I don't really know what people in what kind of framework people are working. And I think it's good to at least bring that up.
5: Can I? Can anyway, I think it's Daniel, I you, think you it's wanted totally to say fine. something? I just want to. Can I just clarify something very quickly about Lacanian Freudian? There is an unconscious. Everyone agrees. The, the difference between Freud and Lacan, it's like how the unconscious works. But they don't have differences about what the unconscious is. They don't. It's, it's, it's how the unconscious works and, and expresses itself.
0: Okay, let's See, bring some more other voices here uh, and not flog this conversation actually, yeah, to death. Yeah.
3: So, um, you know, this, this, this is kind of a, a meta comment that we've been going through for the last uh, few minutes. I don't particularly find any trouble whatsoever with working with uh, many different kinds of concepts about the unconscious i don't i don't necessarily need straight lines to color in much less in a podcast conversation setting i think the the more this is more fun the more sloppy it is the more you know make the sparks go around this is not academia this is not this is not you know we're, we're, we're we're seeing if something cool comes up uh, I, I, I do take your point, Thomas. It's a classic point. Knowing you, um, I would say that like the, the comments that I were making were based on a Lacanian framing of the unconscious as structured as a language, as composed by the discourse of the other, um, as the uh, 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 the discourse of the other. Right? We're born into a world. The world already speaks. We learn to articulate our desires through the speech of the other. Um, that speech of the other is a symbolic order. So when we say, you know, and, and I don't know if I'm going off on a limb here, but symbolic order doesn't necessarily have to mean words. It can also mean, might it also mean embodied habits? Let me let me suggest that perhaps it, it can. Uh, I don't know if this is Lacanian or Freudian Thomas, so I have to forgive me on this one but the, the my whole point is that uh, this relationship that you have with the discourse of the other via intensity, excess, can be resignified, which is precisely what Lacan means with uh, enjoying the symptom. with at the end of the analytic road, the subject will will come to a position where they, they, they'll they'll resignify the relationship to to their to their symptom. And I think that this, kind of condenses what happens on an analytic session, of course. But for me, what I'm interested in is understanding how we can also transpose this template, this formula, into other domains. In other words, when you make a design intervention, when you make an analytic intervention, might they not have the same patterns, the same sort of broad equation? Do we not already see that uh, at large in society with... uh, with, with other situations, my God, let me let me go off on the limb here uh, when, when, uh, when there's an excess conflict within a, a given tribe, uh, and when that tribe decides to kill the scapegoat, and all of a sudden their spirits get transformed and they're all at peace. In this, I read nothing but excess going to a point that it resignifies the tribe's relationship with meaning, with guilt, with the scapegoat and with the the conflict itself. What do
4: you think? I take that as a yes, that everybody agrees.
1: And we're.
0: <laughs> so back to the football game, maybe.
1: Well, I'm, well, I mean, I still think that, okay, this is a podcast, but I mean, that's also why we can kind of, you know, make it a bit interesting and disagree a bit, right? um i think it's very interesting to just kind of you know bring that on the table what do all these big words mean right and and do or do we actually agree about this i don't think that we agree on that at all if i would uh uh uh, ask Mr. Original Gangster over there, OG. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you have a very precise uh, idea of what this this unconscious is, right? And, and I think that is actually that is where the where the discussion gets really interesting when we use these words such as this, uh, so such as the unconscious desire. What does that actually mean? Because if you start if you start really looking into that, and you you discover that you have a certain anthropology, or well, and you discover probably that there will be there will be um, parts in your anthropology that are not well defined. You know, in discussions like this, you often get 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 confronted with with questions where you don't really know the answer. Like you know, well, what is the o- unconscious? And according to your theory, right? According to Girard, mimetic theory. And you know that these are really big questions. But I think that if you really start start being a bit more um, precise about these meanings and 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 find out where the disagreements are, I think that's that's very worthwhile. I mean, like yeah. learning how to cycle—is that part of the of the unconscious? It, it, it seems that, according to to uh, to Alex Ebert, so learning how to cycle, that's part of the unconscious. So basically, just, that is also. No, I so said then, the
5: opposite. I said the opposite. I said learning how to cycle is part of the conscious, and once you for
1: once you. Yes, so once you know how to cycle, then that's in your unconscious. Once okay. Okay, but that that seems to me, I'm not a neuroscientist, but there are kind of like, that's what is that called again? So there are very precise, uh, um, so that you basically teach your body to do something in an automated way that is a very precise and well defined. Uh, aspect of your brain right so I'm not so yeah. sure that Lacan would agree that that is part of his, his, his symbolic unconscious because you know is that is that structured as a language uh, learning how to cycle
3: the desire to learn how to cycle is most certainly structured like a language <laughs> yeah
1: okay good but then we are yes yes okay. that's, uh, yeah.
5: it is but Thomas are you having this in good faith because like I don't even feel like you're agreeing that there are any operations that are unconscious at all this has to be a good faith if we're going to have an argument which I'd love to like then we have to agree that there is something called
1: an unconscious, and then debate what our definitions of it are. Why do we have to agree about that at all? Why why do we have, we have to agree about you anything? I, I totally disagree with that. That is that is a wrong principle.
5: There are, okay, fine. But you told me that there are that there are operations that occur without awareness, and I'm asking you what you call that. You don't have an answer, but if you did,
1: that would be helpful. It's just not something that I would bring up a lot because it's, it's, it's so vague that it kind of covers everything and nothing. I'm
0: feeling a tension here between an artistic process mentality and, let's say, uh, wanting to systemize and, and, and put everything into uh, into clarity and, and it's more scientific mode, which I'm feeling from, from Thomas and perhaps, you know, perhaps what Thomas is saying.
1: That, yeah, but that's that's a, that's the good old old tension between so there, between I, there should be like a time and ritual time, right? That's exactly what yeah. we're talking about. So I think that Alex ever is always. I mean, you're I mean, maybe I'm wrong, right? But I think you're somebody who's talking from ritual time, and you're a musician, you're an artist. You seem to be grappling with ritual time, and you write from that space, just like Nietzsche did, right? So like the Saab yeah. or bataille or Machiavelli, all of these people, they write from some kind of ritual space. And then other people, they you know Paglia, Girard, they are they are more writing from the from the, the the time of prohibition. They they want structure. They want to understand what's going on. And and in in practice, you always cycle between these two times, right? But it's it's you know put the Saad next to Girard. These are these are two extremes. You know the site the side that's like really living and thinking and writing in ritual time. And Girard, that's very much writing in from the point of view of prohibition, right? And of course, you have to read them both next to each other, and then see that there's a tension there that you will never resolve. You know, you're not going to resolve this tension because it's it's inherent to humans. Humans they cycle between ritual time and and prohibition time, and you cannot unite them. That's, that was something that came up in the beginning, right? That we can't. We, I think Fraga said that we can't just make a system that 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 includes everything because it, it's not possible. You have to have this tension. I guess that's that that reminds of Hegelian dialectics right so maybe that's what Hegelian dialectic dialectics is this distinction this between these two times
3: never never Go. thought I'd hear you I'd uh, I'd hear you say that thomas uh, Hegelian dialectics uh, mentioned in a positive note here's that's, a thought here's a thought thank you here's a thought uh there's You know, dialectics. Position one, uh, the person will express their theory in the most complicated possible terms in order to look good. Position two is, no, we should be clear. We should cut off excessive words. You know, we should uh, make our systems cut the fluff. Don't make this into a status game. Make it clean, make it systematized, whatever, which is a little bit like Thomas was in the beginning suggesting. I don't don't, don't truly believe you mean that. Uh, Position number three is, enjoying the, 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 precisely the effects of the chaos of both. In other words, the fact that it is sometimes inflated speech, too many big words, too much chaos, like you said, is a, could even be said to be a feature, not a bug. Um, it generates a discourse. It generates, generates specific kinds of, I'm speaking directly about the IDW here. This kind of sort of excessive, this uh, speech generates a discourse. And then we all inhabit that discourse and our desire is mediated by what happens in that discourse, which is, by the way, unconscious, technically, Lacanian, which is interesting, right? Because then, oh my, oh my God, this guy punctured a hole in my theory, how am I gonna handle that? And all of a sudden I'm involved in this whole enmeshed thing and, and, and that's, that's interesting. <sighs> would, would this kind of, of y- unique way of having our own desires punctured happen in a space that was, you know, radically policed, you, you cannot use excessive words, you have to use this template. No, it would not. It's fun because I, it's excessive. Yeah.
5: And, and just to add on that, like, I, you know, I understand that maybe back in the day, people were praised for using big words. I'm afraid of it. Like my Substack, I want to speak freely. And speaking freely would lose my audience. I'm afraid of doing that. That's why I love having IDW, that once in a while I can have conversations where I just go off. You know what I mean? And I use all the shortcut terminology because I'm trying to say stuff. I'm trying to say a million words in a couple words, you know, because it's a fucking email. So I have fun being able to express myself in a way that I actually feel I have the opposite of problem as Hegel. In order to be popular, I have to cut my shit back. I have to make it like fucking... Yuval Harari, fucking like chop it up and make it like in Hemingway. And that's fucking annoying for me, but I do it anyway because I'm, because I, because I know that I have to. So I DW, I actually get to express myself and it's not about fucking anything other than like the liberty to do so, you know, and, 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 and feeling unhinged in a, in a really beautiful way. So I appreciate it for that reason.
0: Yeah, I notice on the IDW when I think somebody is wrong, like I think this person is fucking wrong about like fifteen things, and I think, well, but it's still interesting their way of expressing it. So, so I still I follow that, yeah. and I and I and I I think okay this, and then they they land on on, on something right. It's like in the middle yeah, yeah, of yeah. all of the all of the insanity and noise and, and ways in which you know I think that they're 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 off. So some that's people, I think, some people like, you know, throw a lot of just garbage there and then they come up with a diamond. There's other people like Thomas who has like a one-liner, which just, you know, ruins the party. But, but it's, like, it's like, like, that's how it kind of uh, goes down there.
3: Yeah, I'm not interested in being right. I'm interested in being wrong with style. I think that's way more fun, way more interesting and what the IDW is about.
0: Into style,
3: yeah. Yeah, being wrong with style. Be wrong in a grand way.
0: Yeah. And like, I was thinking about the football game and I was thinking about the Argentinian team and how they're, they're kind of assholes. They kind of, they're kind of tricksters. They kind of, and, and the French team are sort of like, they're one big machine of a team. Right. And when they're working together, they're like a machine. Right. And when the Argentinians are working, they're like a bunch of radical individuals kind of like causing shit or something like that. So I think that the IDW is more like the Argentinian team,
6: Oj, you must be uh, dying to say something.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
6: Well, first off, I'm going to have to tell my wife that opera means means original and our last name, Garner, means gangster. And I think Mr. and Mrs. Gangster will be tremendous. So we'll have to do that. I think we'll really like that. Um, Fair enough, my friend. Um, Certainly the word unconscious can mean many things to many people. I think generally it can be advantageous to um, base one's thinking in phenomenological experience. So for example, if we're talking the difference between conscious and unconscious and phenomenological experience, I unconsciously can eat food while thinking about something my wife just said, right? Like I can automatically do it. And that's a good place to start, because I do think when we get into Freud, Lacan, etc., there is a question of the unfolding. Also, those um, thinkers are going to really be stressing um, desire in terms of the unconscious, as opposed to everydayness of the unconscious. And that, and actually, arguably... problem is, we kind of use the term to, move, to to mean both, right? Like the way that desire formulates and operates and in the term of everyday operation that I can go through. So if I use Heidegger's example, I usually don't think about turning a doorknob when I turn a doorknob. I just do it, right? And I just go through. In fact, if you're thinking about the doorknob, that means it's probably broken. And that's the whole point, that consciousness actually can draw attention to what is broken. And so the very fact you're thinking about it could actually be a problem. And now you're thinking about uh, the doorknob in terms of it's broken brokenness. And this can be a problem, right? Because a lot of philosophical people may be um, drawn to think about something precisely because it's broken, but then they think about it in the context of that brokenness and get a problematic definition, right? And that's why you always have to be bringing up back abstract reasoning to the concrete everydayness. And that's why the Scottish Enlightenment, you mentioned the word salad and some of the problems with the continental philosophy. Um, you know, I always was greatly in love with the counter-Enlightenment Co. Hume, Hutchinson, all the way through what I think is now the modern counter-enlightenment and all of them are quite concerned of what they'll talk about as the heroic philosophical rise. And what Dr. Livingston will talk about with that, that Hume was so concerned about is how philosophers, um, precisely because they have their common life and abstract reasoning by definition is not bound by everydayness. You can think of what could be, you are there able to rise above common life as someone who can think beyond uh, the everydayness, um, which then makes you feel like you're qualified to control the everydayness and you become a terror. And then you can use words or language or different things to conceal your um, state of privilege that people cannot access because you cannot be understood. So this is certainly a threat. Um, now for Mr. Hume, you have to come back, always a pleasure Mr. Ebert, thank you sir. Uh, you have to come back uh, into the common life and be embedded in it and to have philosophy be in service of the quote unquote common life. Now, happy to explain what we mean by common life that can just be in everydayness. And this is where actually funny enough in the Humean structure, um, If you stay in common life and you never go on the philosophical journey, you can easily be manipulated, thrown into totalitarianism, or just kind of suck in the secondhand smoke of everydayness. But then if you go on the philosophical journey and you stay at the ivory tower, well, then you can equip yourself as all powerful and and then you can become a terror on that because Mr. Hume has been reading the religious wars uh, as a historian in his day and seen that. So one needs to come back to the common life and use philosophy in service of the common life, correct, to defend it and to make sure that it is not terrorized. Right now, um, I'll return to that. But the thing I'll say about the unconscious, if I were to be um, talking about this relation between freedom and um, constraint or givens, et cetera, so forth. So when I first start riding a bike, I think about it a lot because I keep freaking running my face into the pavement. Right. So I have to think about it to get to the place. Where then I can do it without thinking about it. And then you reach a quote unquote saturation point. There's an excess of thought about riding the bike. So you can get to the place where it's automatic, right? And you don't think about it anymore. And now that moves to the place of the phenomenological unconscious. Well, funny enough, though, if all I do is ride the bike unconsciously, eventually it gets boring, right? And it's just kind of like blah, right? So now I need to think of something new that I can do from the determinate being, to use that Hegelian sense, of being on the bike. And now I need to um, spice it up a little little bit, but when I, and the funny thing, and here's the key on the bicycle, I actually can feel freer because now I can ride a bike, but that sense of increased freedom is in the context of restricting myself to the bike which is kind of funny, right? I can't walk while I'm on a bike. I can't fly while I'm on a bike. So precisely because there's some sort of restriction of freedom to the bicycle, it then makes the possibility of feeling like, wow, I'm free to go anywhere because I can ride anywhere. And also your freedom before where you were free from being on a bike kind of felt empty to you because you're just walking around and that's kind of boring, right? So you always have this interesting trade-off that's going on. Also, it is only on the bicycle that one can gain the skill of being good on the bicycle so that they can feel free on the bicycle so there's a restraint so there's if we use mr ebert language uh you know there's a constraint of freedom for the sake of mastering a certain skill that then you can have a new kind of freedom on the bicycle but eventually that gets boring and you have to think of a new idea of how to use the bicycle so that it's not boring anymore but now you're back to square one so you have this different movement and when i talk about hegel and the determinate being and sort of the freedom and a chosen freedom that then is moved to the place where it becomes something you can do automatic and so it doesn't even seem freedom anymore because you're just doing it automatically that's the kind of movement that you have going on. And today, and then I'll pass it to whoever wants to speak. Part of the problem is in the past, the sociological givens on how you should restrain your freedom to become an expert in that freedom and feel free or in it is no longer there. So, for example, it was given you go to church, it was given that you constrain your desires and wills to be someone who is free and not lusting or envying or fitting into taking care of the orphans. And you felt freer in that. But at the same time, you're constrained in your freedom. And eventually, all of that could become dogma, something you just kind of do and say that you believe. Oh, yeah, I take care of orphans. Yeah, I don't believe in sin and different things. But it's like meaningless to you. So you get to the part where you're on the bike and it becomes something you don't even think about. And then it loses its power. And then you got to the point where you said, well, because it's all dogma, you know, let's say at the beginning of the 20th century, it's all just dogma. So get rid of it. All right. Well, not there. Uh, so, uh, So what... Now is going to be the way that we constrain our freedom to become, say, a level of mastery and determ- determinate being in that freedom that will have the same level of feeling like our freedom is meaningful as opposed to chaotic that at the same time does not set up the oppressions of dogma. So that is how I would set the conversation uh, up to have a more phenomenological base of the understanding of uh, unconsciousness. And that I think also this gets into where basically you do need to have at the root of your thinking something that is for me associated with the counter-enlightenment, the Scottish counter-enlightenment uh, enlightenment in the modern counter-enlightenment. But with that, if I, hopefully that's clarified, I'll pass it to whoever like to speak.
0: Well, I'm wondering how that relates to Thomas's idea of the return to prohibition. Right. The return to constraints of some kind.
6: No, that's that's an excellent question. I think that's like the million dollar tension. Right. Because if you choose constraint, how is it ever rational to choose constraint? Why the frick would you do that? Like you're limited in your freedom. Right. Unless you had an anthropology or philosophy, if you grant me that turn, of which constraint is necessary for human flourishing. Okay, well, let's say you determine that X, Y, and Z is a constraint, and that's the one you should do. Well, what, well, what if you and Mr. Sweeney choose a different set of constraints? And what if Thomas chooses a different set of constraints? Well, mm-hmm. then the very fact we're all different is existentially destabilizing to one another, right? That's what like Mr. Berger always stresses. Belief is never isolated. Like it's plausibility structures he'll talk about, how like if your neighbor thinks different from you, it makes you lose less conviction in your own beliefs, right? So actually the fact that other people believe different things impacts you. So you have, you just gotta get a lot of self-confidence, right? Where you're just like, well, frick, no, I believe in my constraints. I'm going to, and this is the key, to create a new constraint today, if the constraint is not given by the society, you have to choose it and frickin' commit to it. Like, you're like, I believe in this, I value this. Uh, let's say living on a farm, right? I could be in a city I or having a family. Let's just take that. You say, I believe in having a family. I don't have to have a family, but I believe there is some value that is, once I do this, my life will be forever organized differently, but I'm going to freaking do this, and I don't care if my neighbor doesn't get married and have kids. That's going to not make me existentially reflect on my choice and question them, and I'm going to stick to it. I, that seems to be what today you have to do if you no longer have um, the givens given to you by the social order because it's Christian or it's atheist or it's or it's Hindu yeah. or what. You have to make that choice. And to me, although I appreciate, uh, you know, Dr. Hemley, I know you emphasized in your talk like the madness of Nietzsche in the 1888 text where he's really then making a. The early Nietzsche, I think, has a little, in my opinion, has a, a little more of a tragic view of the Dionysus. But then once he gets to 1888, he has a much more like, celebrative Dionysus, where you get this kind of Nietzsche that's more celebrative. Um, that is problematic, um, and we can talk about that. But if I'm giving my charitable reading to Nietzsche, I think Nietzsche understood that if God is dead and you don't have the paradigms, then people would have to choose their constraint. They'd have to choose their commitment and that is freaking hard because you have to value things for yourself say this is valuable i'm going to live my life according to that i'm going to constrain myself by this and i don't care what other people think that is insanely difficult right that's well i mean i, I just want yeah.
1: you know nietzsche that's like nietzsche is a total proto-nazi right <laughs> i mean all this whitewashing <laughs> of nietzsche i I'm, I'm not having any of this nietzsche was the great destroyer of compassion that's why he hated Christianity he had no concern for victims and that led straight to a bunch of people who scapegoated on an industrial scale the Nazis that goes straight back to Nietzsche I'm not saying that it was Nietzsche's fault but the Nazis are the Nazis are a logical consequence of thinking like Nietzsche I have absolutely no doubt about that and that is very very clear from his writings if you read the the, the Antichrist you know that book is just full of sentiments that are like you know you cannot you cannot live like that if we go back to that I mean that's that's a, the the bringing back of the dionysian and the removal of the concern for the victim right you can do that in in a tribe and, and bring back the, the 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 old the old uh, sacrificial rituals you cannot do that anymore in an industrial society the Nazis tried to do that the communists tried to do that with their with their gulags that just doesn't work so nietzsche is incredibly flawed and I'm always surprised that people are constantly kind of giving this guy like, you know, the, the, the free out of jail card. Nietzsche is I mean, it's like saying that, you know, the Saad, oh come on, the Saad isn't so bad. The Saad is bad. It's terrible. And that's the whole point of reading the Saad, so that that you can kind of get 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 uh, familiar with that that type.
4: Being Something like a, like a fall of, of, uh, of,
1: of the devils is very useful because they leave a track. And on the contrary, I mean, our study Nietzsche is incredibly interesting exactly because he went somewhere that we shouldn't go. At least not without knowing what we we're doing. That would be my take on it.
3: Small question. Uh, Thomas, would it have been better if Nietzsche had not written what, what he wrote?
1: No, no, Nietzsche is a symptom. Nietzsche is just basically somebody who writes it down. Nietzsche doesn't really have any causative effect, I think. I I didn't mean it in the sense of Nietzsche caused the Nazis, and without Nietzsche, we wouldn't have any Nazis. No, but Nietzsche is the the symptom. Nietzsche doesn't have any recipe to to avoid the disaster. Everybody seems to think like Nietzsche has answers. No, Nietzsche was the guy who wrote, look, there's a shit show going on. I'm in the middle of it, and I have no clue. That's i these. agree with
0: oj rose that there's a there's a there's a point where nietzsche went wrong um uh in, in his writing uh and, and something about him when he goes up the mountain as zarathustra and he doesn't come down or th- there's a way in which he, he 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 lost his sanity and there's also a, a kind of a, an aesthetic uh to his later stuff which 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 is close which is close to madness even before he was mad so i see it sort of like there, there was a sort of a, a, a there's kind of a, there was a, there was a way in which he went wrong at a certain point. I don't think was, he was, was wrong all the way from I mean, the Owen
1: beginning. said it said yeah. it uh, well, right? You know, Nietzsche is a message from hell. I mean, Nietzsche reading Nietzsche is reading the account of somebody who's slowly going down into hell, who's basically destroying his own mind. And you can also read the books with, where he describes this rivalry with 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 Wagner, right? That is like this extreme manic oscillation between admiration and hatred and and, and then uh, it's a it's a complete disaster. I mean if that the whole of 20th century was largely built on Nietzsche is just a fucking joke. This <laughs> is just hilarious. I mean seriously
6: Well, you know, a few things. Uh, First off, um, you know, a lot of problems (laughs) with philosophers um, tend to be taking, like taking parts. So for example, like the allegory of the cave from Plato, right, in the Republic. Well, this is the beginning of book seven, and it's situated in an entire uh, pedagogical structure of what it means to educate. Also, very importantly, when Plato talks about form, um, he makes this very interesting comment toward the end of book seven, where he says, Well, you know, the form, you know, if you look up at the the, the planets, right? He said, actually, it's kind of dangerous to look at the planets because they're perfect. And when you're looking at perfection, you're distracted from form. And he said, I want you to actually pay more attention to the orbits, which is to say that forms are more so like the orbits that planets follow, as opposed to the perfections, right? Well that's a kind of different take on the form. Now, of course, there is a form of Platonism that is about perfection, but there's also a notion of form as being sort of the orbit that entities follow to unfold in themselves as themselves, right? Well, if you separate the notion of um, the form from that idea of, the orbit, well, then you get an entirely different doctrine that can lead into Gnosticism and, you know, escapism and all these different things, right? Well, likewise, um, if we take the the parable of the madman from um, Nietzsche, which is obviously saying God is dead. Now, very important, he's not saying I killed God. He's saying, you guys don't even realize you don't believe in God anymore and that this doesn't work anymore. And if we separate that critique of um, the release from freedom from religion, if you take it, Um, from say the rest of book five of the gay science where he's also saying, oh, by the way, guys, you can't have science do your thinking for you. You can't have the nation state do your thinking for you. You can't have ideas handed down from Tredivans. You can't have any external sources of values be given to you by something outside of it, because all of that is denying the role of the human element, right? Well, if you do all of that, you see what ends up happening in Nazism, say you're going to throw out cultural givenness, but you're going to still then have the nation state givenness, right, or the scientific givenness, right? You're you're not taking the entire picture of it. Now, a strong critique, and I think this is what we're dealing with, like, what are you talking, like Nietzsche? Like, if you have literally nothing that is going to be the source that you're handing it down. You are submitting the average person to a level of existential anxiety that is utterly overwhelming that will make them vulnerable to a strong man or a nation state that will come along and say, we will give you a home, right? And this is what Philip Berg and all of them are talking about. This is where freedom becomes a problem because ironically, when you have too much freedom, it radically becomes its opposite because people are overwhelmed to the point where they just don't want to think about anything anymore and they want someone to give them direction and then they become vulnerable. So that's the irony that occurs. It's precisely in a state that seems to be utter liberation that makes people vulnerable to be taken over precisely because they don't want that uh, You know, then you have the phrase of escape from freedom by Eric Frome and all these different things like that. Mr. Frega, always a pleasure, Um, And and so that, that ends up happening, right? So then the question, then you have someone like Deleuze, as I understand it, come along and say, well, what we need is a metaphysics and physics that makes difference essential. So even if you're like, oh, I want to turn to the other or the big other or whatever to find some sort of placement or belonging, you can't do that that, because any sort of uh, epistemology of representation that would make possible that relation is automatically undermined by a metaphysics of essential difference. So you can't fall into that temptation. Well, that might intellectually and abstractly give you a schema that avoids it. But, you know, most people don't read to lose. And uh, so you still end up falling in from a state of pure freedom to um, to the strong man or anyone that will help you escape those freedoms. So that would be a comment that I would have to what you were saying. And I do think once you get to the 1888 text, I think the Wagner the Wagner books, um Acno. Echo Homo, uh, Antichrist, which I think was going to be book one of in, uh, reevaluating. He was going to do that book on the reevaluation of all values. Then he had the Will to Power notes that he kind of dropped. And then, obviously, by January, um, I think it was January 1889, that's when he goes crazy, right? And they put him in the asylum for 11 years. So I do think once you get to the Nietzsche of 1888, you have a different story. You know, in 1887, we have him writing his attempt at self criticism, which I do think when he places at the beginning of the um, Birth of Tragedy, that did. He, I think it's quite clear there. He's like, yeah, Dionysus is a kind of madness, but you know, if there are no, if there's no Apollyon element left, madness is the only way to come up with something new. But then if you stay in that madness, you end up in all the problems that you're describing. Well, the, big,
1: the big problem with Nietzsche, the big problem with Nietzsche is that he doesn't understand that, Dionys- that Dionysus is the mob. He doesn't know that. And it's, it's yeah. true that Nietzsche often writes about the hurt mentality and the mob and he's against the mob and he's against the rebel and stuff like that. But then he he idolizes the Dionysian. And this is where where his philosophy or or even his, I, I think I read him as a psychologist and anthropologist. I don't really read him. And I doesn't, he doesn't, when I read Nietzsche, he's nothing like, for example, a whitehead. So I, I read Nietzsche as a psychologist or an anthropologist. Nietzsche does not know that the Dionysian is the mob it's the same thing and because mm-hmm. he doesn't know that his his whole way of thinking is completely it's unreliable it's it's muddled it's inconsistent and it's and he he basically goes down because of his own way of thinking He's so busy with destroying compassion and, and trying to be an overman or looking up to the overman. And, and he doesn't understand that he's basically playing around with, with throwing out the time of prohibition and, and going crazy in, in ritual time and not understanding that you cannot live that. That's the problem with Nietzsche. And then, then basically people started, started taking Nietzsche as, as, a, as a big inspiration, the guy who's going to guide us, you know, the guy who really has understood it. That's just totally wrong. Well, but I do give yeah, I do give Nietzsche's due and that is Nietzsche points out that that basically there is a need for ritual time. You cannot deny the time of prohibition but you cannot deny the time of of ritual either. That's what I try to uh, to talk about in uh, the But I, I guess the problem is trying to the create talk, yeah.
0: The problem is trying to create your own ritual or trying to create your own value and and that was the problem that, that Nietzsche, the Nietzsche the inability to receive let's say or be part of a community that that would that would use the Dionysian energy in a creative way. So he's, he yeah. kind of goes off into the wilderness um, without, you know finding a form for that Nietzsche, Nietzsche is constantly trying
1: to find to trying to make find a community and trying to find find a, a functional ritual but he dismantles he dismantles all possibility of actually getting there by by destroying this concern for, for the victim that means that he either has an unfunctioning ritual that doesn't work or something that brings back actual actual ritual sac- sacrifice neither of these things will work so if you if you of you either end up with an unsatisfying ritual, and that's basically the definition of the West these days—it's unsatisfying prohibition and unsatisfying ritual—or you end up with bringing back really archaic mechanisms that involve scapegoating, actual killing on an industrial scale, and that is basically that's kind of these are kind of like the two rocks that we have to avoid. We should not not stay in either of these directions because that will probably not end up well. But Nietzsche is super interesting. I mean, read Nietzsche by all means, but don't don't idolize him. I mean, read Nietzsche like you would read Bataille or 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 Dassad or 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 Deleuze. Deleuze is very is also somebody who really writes from ritual space. He's basically saying like you know schizophrenia. That's the thing, like a complete loss of identity, a, a thousand plateaus and stuff like that. That's a that's a definite That that's just. That's just the, That's just describing, like, why don't we live in the undifferentiation and the loss of identity that comes from ritual? That's Deleuze. Mm-hmm. It's just like Nietzsche.
0: It seems there's a big movement today, you know, just to, you know, kind of like, maybe we can start to wind down our conversation a little bit, but...
1: Yeah, because everybody's towards, running out. Because <laughs>
0: everyone's running away from you, uh, Thomas. <laughs> maybe, it's, from maybe it's Maybe because, it's my fault. Maybe it's because, uh, <laughs> like... Uh, the whole Jordan Peterson movement and all this is like it's it's a movement back towards prohibition. It's like we went way too far there with our Nietzschean Dionysian, you know, excess and, and stuff. Now we have to rein all that in. It becomes that becomes another extreme, I think, um, uh, uh, on some level, like this return to this sort of conservatism. But we always have to keep this razor's edge, I, I, I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah. The Peterson, the the evolution of Peterson is super interesting, right? There, you can also see an evolution, right? There's something happening with that man, mm. and it's, he's definitely in the corner of prohibition.
0: Yeah, he's moved way yeah. towards prohibition. Not that he doesn't kind of get a little bit of the other things, but 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 he he seems to be wanting to really stamp down hard on that, mm. which uh, which may also be a mistake. I, I wonder, you know. I believe so. It's tricky.
6: Well, you know, a few things. Um, for me. When we read Nietzsche before 1888, we see a Nietzsche that is, in my opinion, saying that prohibitions have all an expiration date. It's not necessarily that, oh, we will be better off without the prohibitions. It's that they're not going to last and that therefore we need a new way of thinking, mainly a master morality, to handle a state where nothing is given and therefore you have to choose for yourself what you are going to restrain you by and live according to. Now, I agree uh, with Dr. Hemlick that by 1888, There was kind of this mad celebration of this state, which maybe that comes from staring into the void and being like, oh, frick, what's going to go on, right? Um, So what's interesting is you do seem to see increasingly with Dr. Peterson and all these different pages an awareness that autonomous freedom uh, is not all that it's cracked up to be uh, and that it tends to, to blow up. But here's the problem. Um, okay, well, then you need to go back to prohibition. Well, how the frick do you do that without choosing it for yourself? Like, if you don't believe that God exists, that there's not a transcendent reality, then whatever prohibition you choose uh, is ultimately created. And if it's created, it's not really a, it's not fully a prohibition. It's an imposed, it's a chosen prohibition, which removes from it some of its power, right? I'm not saying it removes all of its power because you can be committed, but this is where I guess I was bringing up Hegel. Because it would seem that you would have to choose a prohibition that you commit to to the point where it becomes habit and you kind of forget that it's chosen because it becomes unconscious. And then therefore, Mm. it seems like you can start to be getting a determinate being that can get the function. So to me, because I I do agree with you, you know, you're mentioning the difficulty of reading Hegel. Like I uh, I've told Dr. Lass this a few times I uh, I read um, philosophy of right like in 2011, I was like, I am never reading this crap again. Um, and <laughs> uh, went off in the in the um, the Economist a lot with the Economist Minsky and all these and um, and uh, and then the Scottish Enlightenment who I fell in love with the Counter Enlightenment. The issue becoming is that um, I I did a lot in literature and I I started to get a little more sympathetic because I'm like you know Milton's really hard to read too Beowulf is really hard to read like you see this problem in literature in general where a lot of things can be difficult to read and then Dr. Lass bringing me up and then I could see also um, how Hegel this is a different topic and I won't open this tan. Um, it is difficult for me to get from Hume to positioning them in a globalized world or an interconnected world that ultimately doesn't look like something like the fourth political theory of Dugan. And that's a problem. Now I'd have to explain all of that, uh, but it seems to go there. So if you're going to have nations relating to one another, that are ultimately going to respect the concrete common life, but but in that concreteness also not see themselves as superior to one another or not seeing the other as an opportunity for creative emergence, then you somehow have to give rise to an ontology and a metaphysics of which makes the other essentially part of your identity. This is where I'll talk about AB logic as opposed to AA logic. And I have been convinced of that possibility in Hegel, although I do not deny at all that it is not easy. Also, I am a layman and know nothing about Bergson Whitehead, uh, but I have been convinced that there may be some resources there as well. And I would love not to put any pressure on you, Thomas, but if you ever wanted to do lectures on Whitehead, I'd love to hear it. And I do believe Mr. Bard in his book on process and events is going to be talking on those thinkers. They do seem to be part. And I'm also convinced of the resources of what I call the counter the modern counter-enlightenment, which I think was entirely missed. And it's not post-modernity. It is an A-B logic and someone like a of Florensky. And I can list off some other names if you want, Plungier, Firebund, and different things. Uh, but anyway, I think for me, I guess I would say that I think Nietzsche was aware of the problem of um, uh, the loss of these prohibitions and what that would lead to. Uh, and then the question is, what do we do with it? And this is where I do get interested in questions like habit, moving prohibition to the realm of the unconscious and organization. Uh, but certainly to just um, acknowledge what you're saying, if we if we really emphasize the 1888 Nietzsche, you get a kind of mad sort of love of the Dionysus, and that indeed is problematic.
1: Well, but I, I don't think, okay, yeah, good. So I, I agree with a lot of, some of the stuff I had no idea what you were talking about, um, <laughs> um, but um, but I mean I'm not saying that you shouldn't read Nietzsche. I mean I think that actually Nietzsche really was struggling with the times that he was living in, with mm-hmm. the, the 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 collapse of prohibition, the collapse of 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 ritual, and he was lost. He was also somebody who grew up without his father, so, so Wagner was then a father figure for him and stuff like that. This guy. Was in was in hell in turmoil and and basically the world around him was collapsing and he saw that we would end up with World War One and World War II he saw that and he basically started writing up his experience so I'm not I'm not dissing Nietzsche right I'm not, I'm not painting Nietzsche like a, a bad person who who is responsible for Nazism that's not what I'm doing. I'm just writing like you should read Nietzsche as a document about a man who lived in a in a time where everything was falling apart and where he himself was falling apart. And he wrote down that trajectory and that's an incredibly important document just like you read you read Casanova not because he's such a great guy right the guy was a murderer and a con man but you read Casanova because he he wrote a unique account of the time that he lived in it's the same with Nietzsche I mean that's so I'm not saying that he's like you know he's that he's wrong in a, in a Nietzsche is never wrong in a trivial sense right well, well, hey well, Tom
0: it- what's what's your take on Nietzsche I want to hear I want to pull in Tom here to this conversation, if he if you no, feel like. like.
2: I was just thinking because I, I I really like the idea that he's a diagnostic doctor of his time, right? And he's a he's trying to make sense of the times he was living in, and and so he's such a complex figure and such. You know, we're still talking about him. Yeah, And I think that's not just because of the times that he described, but he, some, he somehow unveiled something about the human nature that is still something for us to discover. And so what I was thinking about the last two weeks was so he he declared the God, uh, the death of God. But at the same time, he declared uh, uh, the Übermensch, right? And so uh, but this was not a vision that he had. That was just a statement of fact, because when, when God goes, Suddenly, we need. There's an what 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 happened culturally that was like an integration of a vertical tension that we need and that we or, that we need to orient our, ourselves in the light uh, in, in the world in. And so, what he did was to internalize the God image in ourselves, and that is something that still drives us. You know, we all striving towards something. We all want to. Uh, uh, Develop greater complexity and develop around our personality and everything. We're striving, and we're, but we're not striving to God anymore. But we have completely internalized it. And that is something that he, at that time when he was living, diagnosing it, that that was happening in our culture, that we are free, but we are bound by our, by this word, this is a term from Sloterdijk. He, he uses that to you know, we we always strive towards something we need goals, we have a pull towards something. And that was something that that Nietzsche kind of pointed his finger to and I found that I still find it super interesting that he was the one to really point that out. It's interesting that he
0: said he was writing for the very few, right? Whereas in a way he's diagnosing our, our, our problem uh our you know our possibility and our problem the problem that we can make choices kind of like you know that there the, we can stare into the abyss and all that we're not just given a receipt we're not just receiving a culture right that that we have to we're not just living in an archetype right that we we're, we're, we have this weird this terrifying kind of freedom that we never had before so well,
1: well we had the we had the old the old mechanisms They've been collapsing for about 3,000 years, right? The old mechanism was just, sure. you know, there are times of prohibition, and then when prohibition needs to be lifted, we create a ritual. And because when prohibitions are lifted, there will all there will always be conflict in the tribe. So when you are in ritual, you also kill people, and that has been working for for hundred thousands of years, right? Humans are modern human is like three hundred thousand years old, something like that, right? So for most of the of the time. That's how we survived. We had times of prohibition, and then sometimes we have a ritual, and then we did crazy stuff, and we killed people to get rid of the conflict that, that was always associated with ritual. And then a couple of thousand years ago, it's not a lot of year, thousand years ago, right? Maybe three, 4,000 years ago, we had Judaism, and Hinduism and Zoroastrianism and Christianity and all those religions—they basically said, for some reason, you know, we can't do that anymore. And it's probably because this stuff becomes very, very dangerous when when you bec- when you start getting larger cities and larger um, larger um, um, uh, structures of, of of humans. Like the the the, the late uh, Roman Empire was just one 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 big, um, it was just one one big slaughter of one emperor after the other, right? So that there's and, and and then we had slavery and stuff like that. So that at some at some point, so there was this there was this movement towards let's not scapegoat anymore, right? But that also means that we have lost all the mechanisms to pacify society. The easiest thing to do is just to say, like, you know, it's the Jews, and then you just kill all the Jews, right? then you just blame the Jews blame the Jews that's, that's what pe- people have been the christians have been doing for 2000 years right but now that nobody believes in that anymore nobody believes anymore that people are really guilty like that you can't do that anymore people have become too smart nobody believes anymore unanimously in the guilt of the scapegoat that train has left the uh, has left the station forever but that also means that we don't really have any any good way to pacify to pacify a uh, conflict we have capitalism that means we flood everybody for, with goods. We have democracy. That means also that we don't have to kill people to get rid of them. This is the big problem that that a dictator like Putin has now, right? If he would live in a, in, a, in a democracy, he would just be asked to step down because he created an impossible situation. But now there's no there's no way to do that. So that's the great thing about democracy, right? Democracy allows you to kind of replace people. And the big problem that the Roman Empire had in the end, right? That it was like one one emperor after the other got murdered, right? The great thing about democracy is not so much, you know, the people speaks, but it's like, you know, we don't have we don't have to kill people anymore to get rid of them. So all of these, all of these, so we have this big tension, right? If we ever go back to old sacrificial thinking, that's the end for our society. That's the end of the world because in a nuclear world, that kind of blaming that leads to the Armageddon. But then we also need mechanisms to kind of avoid escalation of conflict. What are these mechanisms? Unclear. And now we have the digital networks expanding. We're going to have billions and billions of devices all hooked up to the Internet. We're going to have people hooked up to the Internet in virtual reality. We have chat GTP that, that that starts to, I mean, you can really have quite intelligent conversations with chat GTP. It knows Girard. It knows Nietzsche. It knows Paglia. You can just talk to it, right? So where is all of this stuff going? This is, this is enormously interesting, right? And that's why, why thinkers like Nietzsche are, are extremely interesting because they, he wrote about what can happen when when old societies, when old structures collapse. And that's why Nietzsche will will, will forever be extremely relevant.
6: Excellent, few, few things just as, as a comment. Um, One of of the great tensions becomes when uh, prohibitions no longer uh, feel as if they are necessarily grounded in some sort of transcendent reality, right? And so what Nietzsche does as he goes through the genealogy of morals, he basically goes through and tries to make the case, and this is where Foucault likes him so much, he's like, hey, all of those uh, prohibitions that you thought were transcendently grounded turns out a masterclass made them. So they were always created. And by the way, now you have to make your own prohibitions, right? And so then it's like, good luck. And then it just turns out that that's really, really difficult. Um, so you know one of the one of the things now that we find today is the difficulty of creating so we need I think Jordan Peterson these movements all show that people need some kind of prohibition in order to function but they but, but how do you have a prohibition that has power to you if it doesn't feel like it's grounded in some sort of transcendent reality right? That becomes quite difficult. Um, another thing I would say
1: uh, is but, your, but, uh, wait I want to take you up on that it, so that is something that I that we hear again and again right so if you don't have this transcendent reality you know then 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 there is no there there is no way to kind of justify these prohibitions and then people like Foucault say oh these prohibitions you know this is just the master race that kind of puts these prohibitions there to to uh to rule over the slaves right but that's not why these prohibitions are there these prohibitions are there because you need them if you don't follow them it's not it's not so much the of course prohibitions are used to 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 um to, um, um, to, for the profit of, 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 of ruling elites. Of course, that will be part of it. But many of these prohibitions are there because desire is super dangerous. You can't yes. just have people, can't, you can't have like rampant sexuality around because then people going in competition over partners and you have an enormous amount of conflict. So these prohibitions are there to set a limit to desire in times of prohibition so that you avoid people killing each other. That's why these prohibitions are there. Foucault is totally wrong about this. Completely well, that's like- why. No, 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 I don't disagree
6: with any of that. That's why I always find Foucault so interesting in his later years when he starts going, yeah, maybe these norms aren't so bad after all, and then he dies. Like It's very fascinating to follow the early Foucault to the later Foucault, actually, precisely because you start to see this... Maybe I was wrong about that. Uh, And I find that quite fascinating in the same way that I think it's interesting to compare the early Freud with the later Freud, um, because indeed, it is a big mistake to assume that even if indeed the elites created these prohibitions, it would not follow that they are therefore bad. And that's kind of an impression that we have today, right? Um, You would have to examine them. And I think that's exactly why I think basically philosophy or thinking really needs to take seriously what I call the tragic sociology of some like a Philip Reif and a Peter burger, And I associate Gerard with that as well. Uh, and because I think when we miss that, it's just either or we're fools because there is a reason for these things. Now, what I I think to your point as well, what I was going to say, with Nietzsche, by, by creating that impression for a long time, so you're right what you say, when Christ dies, it unveils the scapegoat mechanism and then it doesn't work, right? Well, there's another kind of um, movement in theological traditions. I'll take Christianity, which is the notion of teleology and the idea that ethics is not merely say just nice moral codes but that following certain models like the person of jesus is literally participation in the very ontological underpinnings of reality it is not arbitrary like there is some mystery now you don't have to buy any of this but this is the idea of medieval philosophy you know movers and different things or one of the ideas there's lots of them but is that somehow following x model makes you participate in the deepest reality Right, where it's not just an arbitrary preference, but you're literally somehow expressing the, the divine. So you had the scapegoat mechanism fail, but at least you had notions of modeling that people were incentivized to follow that were not arbitrarily chosen in people's minds because it followed deepest being. Right? So they did that for a long time and that kind of, now obviously the, it wasn't perfect because you had uh, all of the wars and the seven years war and different things and totalization, but there was a, a little, there was almost like a second container, not as good as the first, but like a kind of fallback container. Well, then you get to about, and this is one of the ways I see kind of around the Nietzschean time, Now I have to explain this, but then it's like, no, ethics doesn't participate in some sort of ontological underpinning. That doesn't work. Well, now the model's gone, this notion of kind of ontological modeling and you don't have the scapegoat mechanism to fall back on. Oh, frick. So you have like a double failure that occurs almost at the same time that we are then having to live with and to figure out what that means. And certainly we are not going to think about it well if we just say, oh, um, norms, givens, their power, they're just control and different things. That way of thinking has made us dumb. And that's why I really do like. Love- like, and then I'll pass it. Um, I really do like Martha Nussbaum's book, The Fragility of Goodness, where she says the word tragedy does not mean catastrophe. It means a trade-off of competing goods. And we don't think about society anymore as a trade-off of competing goods. We think of it as problems and solutions. Oh, we have problems? Well, here's the solution. That's not how it works. You know, if you look at the plays of Sophocles, if you go back to the Greek, it's like they basically trained people to participate in democracy by having them regularly experience them art that suggested to them the nature of reality was tragic, not problems and solutions. Yeah, and basically
1: that's a, so tragedy is basically one of the ways in which you can kind of reveal the nature of desire, essentially. Right. And we can that's also exactly see that in Shakespeare right. and really great art, you know, like Proust and stuff like that. But that and that that's maybe a, a, one one way to conclude this this, uh, this long evening. But I would argue that we can kind of go away from this obsession with this this transcendental reality right which which mm. i think is optional and we can move into anthropological pragmatism we now mm-hmm. know how desire works we now know that there are times of prohibition there are times of ritual we need that and we we can we can start thinking about that consciously and we can kind of talk about this rationally we well, now know that there are reasons for for religion. We now know that religion is tied to humanization, you know, the transition from animal to humans. Girard has a whole theory about that. That seems very plausible. It's also being, being uh, confirmed by various uh, scientific and archaeological um, uh, findings and things such as that. So now we know how humans work. We know that desire is mimetic. We know that religion is there. To to put prohibitions on people and sometimes to um, to cause uh, to uh, to um, facilitate uh, transgressions and to to and, and to accompany that with with sacrifice in order to channel the aggressions and stuff like that we know all of that so now we can kind of start to look at at mechanisms organizations groups ways of being that 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 make that possible and probably what we will have is some kind of global set of prohibitions it's already happening right uh you know me too and all of these discussions i mean it's basically just people calling for a set of, of prohibitions that are universal and within the sea of prohibitions right where we will all agree it's not okay to kill it's not okay to to, huh. to uh, murder and, and rape and pillage and stuff like that and within that 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 framework that global sea of prohibitions we will probably have many many bubbles of ritual, different rituals and, and, and different ways of transgression. And, 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 uh, and, 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 I think this is, this will be hopefully in, in a, a time of great uh, creativity. You were talking,
0: saying uh, universal uh, rules of prohibition kind of, that's like a new 10 commandments or something, or like that's so just going to emerge actually through and It's already
1: like that. I mean, basically the whole world has kind of the same ways of thinking i mean in the small pockets where you can still do a really outrageous thing in public right they're shrinking very fast i mean this whole everybody seems to agree on these are the prohibitions we want and if you kind of break these right and everybody starts boycotting you and they don't want to trade with you anymore you know these prohibitions they will be enforced by trade by the big trade deals and by the by access to the seas Hmm. This will also be, will be driven by technology, right? So access to the seas, access to 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 digital services and stuff like that. I mean, that's that's where we're going, mm. and I think we will have a universal prohibition. But of course, within that, if we don't, if we only have universal prohibition, we are in a very big trouble. We need to to it needs to be clear that there need to be spaces where these prohibitions are to some extent in an organized way. I'm not saying that it's something, something everything should be should be uh, allowed and everything is hunky dory, right? I mean, also these because Thais said. Also, ritual space is highly, highly structured. The whole idea of of freedom is is a pipe dream. There is never any freedom for humans. That is impossible. You have structured prohibition and you have structured rituals. That would be my take on it.
6: I think that's an excellent take. And I know it's getting very late for you, gentlemen. I appreciate you. It's just the afternoon here in Virginia, so I can keep you all till like another 10 hours. But what to me is a very fascinating question that we will see unfold. Um, So we were, you know, I was mentioning how following kind of a medieval schema, there's a kind of vertical fittedness, right? You follow this ethical code or model and you fit with some sort of ontological vertical level. The question we're going to see is, is it possible for the average person which I don't mean as a derogatory, I just mean as an average, um, to find the same sort of level and feeling of genuine fittedness in something that's more horizontal if you will, or based on an anthropological conception of human beings or what actually works. That's kind of the challenge because you know what you're saying there about a new universal prohibition. The reason why I critique Philip Reef on his language of constraint, which I want to use givens is because what basically has to happen is the universal prohibition has to be experienced by the average person as a universal given. This is just how things work. This is the way things should be, that this is not a top, otherwise it feels totalitarian, right? It feels like some sort of center has said you would do it. So is it possible, and this I think is our challenge, to create a universal given, ergo possibility of horizontal fittedness and it not be totalitarian? That would be kind of a way I frame it or think about it, more needs to be said about that. But I think what you're getting out there, Dr. Hamlet, is, is right. That seems to be a lot of the challenge.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's the great—that's the great question, right? How is that going to happen? So w- will that imply um, AI supervision at all times and and a dictatorship and and there? Will, but that also means that there will be very little space for ritual, right? I think that these systems will be unstable. You know, I mean, look at the states. I mean, it's still the most powerful. That's the most powerful uh, um, power in the world, right? I mean, we live in a monopolar polar world. I mean, it's not very clear that China and Russia are not really—they're not really competing with the states, and the states is is still very much committed to 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 chaos and and uh, division of power and different opinions that clash with each other. I don't really see that much indication that is that this is moving to a to a dictatorship. To be honest, mm. I mean, it, it seems not. that this this it seems actually that exactly systems that allow. A lot of fighting online and 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 conflict and and noise. That these systems are much more efficient than these other systems that are much more authoritarian. I think Marshall McLuhan would agree. That's with where that. the money is. That's where the the military yeah. power is. That is where the, the the medical know-how is. As far as I can see, it seems that these systems work much better than 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 systems that are working on some kind of pyramid of of containment. Yeah,
6: I, I think it's very important. not for the, to have some sort of knee jerk reaction in a kind of Luddite way where any of sort of technological organization is bad or anything like that. I think that point you're making is good there. I think it also may, I know uh, Brendan will be doing work, a class on kind of emergence and Layman Pascal knows this kind of notion of emergence being very important. So is it the case that say if the average person, again, I don't mean that derogatory, where the average person could somehow see emergence as, Necessary. And therefore, that kind of be the ground of the universal given or the horizontal defined fittedness. And it's some sort of finding because fittedness, when I say that I'm thinking teleology Aquinas, all that different stuff, is it somehow possible to have the average person see fittedness in emergence. That seems to be part of it. And technology would, of course, be part of the emergence. We know, Mr. Bard, that we'll talk back to emergent, you know, these different things that seems to have something to do with the puzzle. And indeed, I will note now I'm biased because I, you know, I know Christianity. I think like uh, there's such a movement, in a lot of American Christianity on saying, hey, we got to bring back that Holy Spirit thing because we become really dogmatic, stressing the father. And you got to have this creative uncertainty. That's part of it. They may completely transform what your church names it needs to do today because you can't give it otherwise it becomes oppressive in a way, right? Well, there's something about right. that that kind of points to a need for seeing emergence as part of the fittedness. And how do you get people to see that? What are the, you know, the classes like Brendan is doing, the work layman, what, what is the um, ecology, I guess, Mr. vivega Dr. Viveki, ecology of practices, ecology of thinking that would make um, emergence plausibly something in which fittedness can be found. That all seems quite important.
1: Well, it seems that that we are we are basically in a a capitalist space where there will be competition for people's mm. prohibitions and and rituals. I mean, look at look at what we're doing here, right? I mean, this is sure. just attracting people, and you know, Parallax is trying to create a sangha and this and that. I mean, there's like there's like thousands and thousands of these. Of these initiatives out there. There's Jordan Peterson, and there's all these people that are that are talking to other people on the internet and trying to create a Sangha. So so we are moving. I think I, I call this the era of, of anthropological pragmatism. And what, what 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 everybody's looking for community before this era? Everybody was looking for individuality, right? The individual desire. I want to in, express my individuality and, and and now everybody's looking for community. Nobody. also wants dialogue, to too,
0: right? Dialogue as well, not just community, but 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 I think the, one of the one of the insights of Marshall McLuhan is like dialogue is how you cool down this this uh, dr- this this um, you know he called it cool media this this um, you know ri- rivalrous polarities uh, which create war and the, the the way you do that is you do war through dialogue right you, you fight it yeah. out through 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 having these kind of like Endless yeah, this, this is a
1: very Nietzschean way of thinking because nietzsche was yeah. also very much um, you know he was he was idolizing war and 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 you know that this is all this is that something will come out of this and and i think this kind of thinking is totally over in this world right if we have some kind of really big war in 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 in, in this world you know everything is so globalized it's just game over we cannot we cannot go on with these with these wars. I mean look at this this fairly small war that, that is going on in, in Ukraine now, right? This can very easily escalate into something that is that is an absolute armageddon. So we, we have to kind of somehow somehow there there need to be some kind of mechanisms to put some kind of limits to this. Well maybe it's already happening, right? I mean the states are not even they don't even have any soldiers there, right? It's the Ukrainians who are fighting in Ukraine and I mean, it's like a proxy war, right? So maybe that is that that is also something that is part of the future, right? It's very localized uh, um, conflicts that are. I don't want to get too political, right? Because I'm not a specialist in there, in that. And then I might. But it seems to me, you know, we, this is a very clear example of a very a small area where you have an enormous amount of technology that is that is fight, fight technology is fighting technology, right? Well, you know, in
0: a way, that? the reason that it's a it's kind of a David Goliath situation, or if that's what it is. Is because the Russians are are using the old tech, right? So they're in they're in an old model of reality. They haven't really adjusted to to the new model of reality, and I think that's part of part of the reason why it wasn't just a walk in the park to invade Ukraine because it wasn't they were just invading a country. They were invading a, a paradigm, right? Of of which was operating on a different technological.
1: Well, it's level. a it's a lab for for modern warfare, essentially. Yeah. It's kind of like a little test tube where where modern war, war, warfare is is evaluated.
6: Well, it's very interesting. Um, if we take Nietzsche as kind of going back to the war, you know, he always wanted this the pre-Socratics, and he talks a lot about Homer. Well, if we take the Iliad, because I think that would mean if we were to think now, if in the Nietzsche, you'd have to think the Iliad. Well, in the Iliad, if you grant me this, there seem to be three main principles in operation. You have uh, the rage of Achilles or war. You have rhetoric and you have fate. Um, And what's very interesting is that Achilles seems to have a very interesting ability to defy fate in his rage. And that's why there's a problem. Because if fate is defied, the universe tears down. Even the gods are like, we gotta get in there and make sure that his rage isn't unleashed at the wrong time and it's not contained in the right way or else we're all screwed. Well, I think if you apply that today, there's a way in which fate is game theory dynamics. Uh, You have rhetoric like we're doing online in the parallax. I think this kind of need for these communities to think through. And then you have war, right? So they're all in operation if we go Go back to a kind of what Nietzsche is talking about, kind of Homer, Homer, and the game theory dynamics we know are very problematic. I, I don't, need you know, we all know how this is, like with nuclear conflict and different thing. And then you have it does seem to be that rhetoric is going to be very important, oration. That's why to me I'm extremely critical of the lack of, say, teaching of rhetoric, oration, and the ability to communicate ideas. That seems like it's going to be a very big deal, different subject. To but if we go back to the the Iliad, that seems to be a big deal. And to me, you. You know, on the question of what 2023 looks like for me. Um, for me, what's very important, if therefore rhetoric somehow plays a huge role in the uh, keeping the game theory dynamic from leading us to the apocalypse, basically. Uh, now, maybe that's idealistic, but I think if we follow a pre-Socratic model, there's something there, then it's what I like to call the pricing problem of horizons. Um, now you have goods, services, and now you have all these online communities that are creating new horizons That's a philosophical world where it of ways to, to see things, right? We don't right now have a very good economic mechanism to sustaining, maintaining, and having high quality information about what, what communities of horizon are creating the best kind of kind of horizons in order to say, keep war from coming to the apocalypse or different things like that. So the I'm extremely interested in economics on this pricing problem. And we have to get into what pricing is. You know, economics is not merely about making money. It's about quality information. It's about sending signals. It's about figuring out how to distribute resources. And what what has happened is basically, and this would be my point, is for most of history, you haven't really had to worry about the problem of horizons because it was given to you by your religion, given to you by your society, and you would just do it. You'd have a horizon by which you thought about the world and had valuable ideas. Well, if that's no longer given, then people have to choose the horizon for themselves And how the heck do you do that? And how do you even begin to figure out what community you should invest in? Should I do Jordan Peterson? Should I do Parallax? Should I do, boy? what should I do? You don't have high quality information to help that sorting of information so that you can figure that out because you don't yet have a pricing mechanism to help with the pricing of horizons. Now, this is an extensive topic, but if, you know, that's something that I- That's a big topic. Yeah. Intrinsic Research Co. with Anthony, we talk about that. There does seem to be some possibilities of Web 3.0, but right now it's a mess. But there does seem to be an underlying mechanism possibility. If you grant me that, you don't have to grant me that. I will, you know, Intrinsic Research Co. uh, That seems to be a really important topic to um, take seriously uh, some of the problems that you have today. I call it the pricing problem of uh, horizons.
0: I think you've opened up about 15 new topics. (laughs) Go ahead. Oh, Sorry, Tom. I was I was speaking at the same time. Maybe we got a couple minutes, and I, I got to run. But yeah. but uh, but do you want to do you want to just say say what you're going to say, Tom?
2: No, 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 I was just, no, I, I love that what you what we were saying. It's just, that was what I was trying to express with vertical tension instead of horizons and the, the internalization of, you know, the the things that you can do. Yeah, and so you have to choose where you go and you're like completely uh, uh, responsible for this. And so it's like, and the thing Nietzsche, at least in my reading was saying that, you know, you have to avoid thinking of yourself as a victim. You know, that is how I read him. Because it's like when you're confronted with that horizon and when you're confronted with the vertical tension, then it's like the the worst thing that you can do is like think yourself as a victim. And so that's like, you know, that's how I read him.
6: Yeah, and I'll just add, I think the strongest critique, this might sound really funny, the strongest critique against Nietzsche is basically Ayn Rand, like Atlas Shrugged, which, you know, the great critique of Atlas Shrugged is to say, okay, but there's no such thing as a John Gold. There's no Francis Day on Anara and you can't run off the gold's gold, right? Um, Now I have a lot to say on Ayn Rand simply because I think it's a fascinating case study. And also, of course, in Ayn Rand, there's always the question of what is compassion? Can't this be used for a scapegoat, you know, to to scapegoat victimize and different things like that? And it's like, yeah, now C would say, well, no, because if you choose by your own values to help people, then, you know, it's not necessarily oppressive in different things. Yeah, here's the problem though. It just happens to be the case that the only victims we take tend to take care of are the ones like us, or the ones in our tribe, in our community. And how do you move beyond that? Well, used to be that it was part of the very ontological metaphysical blueprint that, um, you know, you have to take care of the Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans, the Jewish people and Samaritans don't get along very well, doesn't matter. You've got to somehow see them as good and try to see the good in them. Well, you know, if that doesn't apply somewhere, it becomes difficult. So I think that I, you know, I hope, I do think there is definitely a tension of avoiding uh, treating people badly in Nietzsche or Ayn Rand or different things, simply because even if you do have any kind of selflessness or altruism, it tends to be captured by whatever your uh, people are. But I did open about 20 more. So now we have 35 more conversations now, 15 plus 20 there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, when you have a flurry of ideation, I what happens in my brain is it goes and it shatters in 15,000 different directions. And I was like, which one should I take? (laughs) But anyway.
6: Well, I I, I know you have to go. And I also appreciate you being here after the the amazing uh, World Cup game as well. Um, But uh, I did want to say, Dr. Uh, Thomas Hamilick, I've enjoyed speaking with you very much. This was a lot of fun. So I appreciate your time. And and Tom and Andrew, I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Daniel. You're on fire, man. Yes. Thanks so much.
1: This was uh, very enjoyable. I thought it was very interesting. yeah. Yeah. I lost a few much. people
0: along the way, but
6: <laughs> that jungle <laughs> internet. I feel like so privileged with country internet now. I'm like, wow, I really made it. Um, but I, I appreciate it all very much. I really like how um, the framing because I do think 2023 basically the pricing mechanism, the like finding fittedness and emergence. These seem to be a lot of what needs to happen. And I think there's given what Doc, you know Thomas said about Ukraine. This isn't there is imperative. This is not like uh, irrelevant sort of topic. It can feel that way because it's just a bunch of guys talking philosophy or whatever online. But I always like Richard Reaver where he says ideas have consequences, good and bad. Uh, And so it is very important to take that seriously moving forward.
1: But I always wonder, like, you know, like, um, so I wonder how, you know, people who are in in positions of military and uh, economy and things like that, how much they... Know these things, how much they know of Girard, or how much or other systems, so which systems are they using, or are they just doing this ad hoc on a, an ad hoc basis? I mean, I'm I'm very curious about that because it seems like so Girard has this really big anthropology system, right? And it seems to be, I mean, I've read I've read spent a lot of time with Lacan, I spent time with Jung, with Freud, and with some other thinkers and to me, it's like mind-boggling how how much this system of Girard explains. That's why I spent so much time on it, right? And then there's other thinkers like Mark Ansbach and, and, uh, and Dupuy, Jean-Pierre Dupuis who thinks about economy. So I think that the, the combination of mimetic theory with economy is something that I want to spend more more time on next year. So I wonder, like, are are the people in charge, let's say, in the military, in in economy, in the government, and stuff like that, do they have an idea of the of the anthropology of humans? And and are they using it or not? I mean, we have clear examples of, of people in power who are using these ideas, like Peter Thiel, the guy who uh, who founded Facebook. So he was he was a student of, of Girard, and he believed in Facebook exactly because he knew about the mimetic nature of of humans so that so this is like a big thing right so are 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 the people in who are who are in in important positions so do they have an, an anthropology which anthropology is it are they aware that it exists or not um because if you don't have your anthropology right then you might start wars or start taking actions that are that that are, have that have consequences that you never anticipated and that, this yeah. is the this is the problem that i have with many thinkers you know they 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 make these nice, nice uh, rational systems, you know, and, and it looks like it, it all fits. But they never really look at, at anthropological data. How are tribes? How, how do tribes function? How, what's the difference between times of prohibition, times of ritual? Why do tribes um, kill twins? Why do tribes um, uh, kill people in rituals? And and it seems that nobody's really thinking about this, and nobody really understands that these same dynamics that have been going on for for 100,000 of years right They're still in us we're, we're still driven dr- driven by these same the same dynamics and maybe you call that the unconscious I, I call that basically mimetic desire but um so if you're not aware of that and if Girard is right then uh, there might there are a lot of suboptimal decisions out there and and probably also with respect to economy and and, and things like that it might be so that there could be there could be ways to stabilize these systems Uh, and make them, let's say, more manageable,
6: I agree hundred percent. And if I go back to David Hume, basically he warns any philosophy that is created, not deeply observing common life, everyday interaction, the way emotions work. You're mm. um, That was, that's what he means by common life. Like when he makes a point, he's like, you think you follow ethics because of your moral system? No, it's because of sentiment. He's not being a Derrida deconstructionist that how everyone reads it. He's saying, no, your experience is the, is the, the foundation of your thinking. And once you lose that, you're gone. Like, I don't, you really, it's basically inexcusable today to do philosophy without a deep understanding of, you know, I've been talking about sociology, but, uh, you know, all of them are anthro- taking anthropolo- anthropology into account as well. Like, if you don't know about, say, Louis de Homo where there's very good reason to see that humans are innately herogactical and they create those from a study of where the caste system came from, because, you know, a lot of people said the caste system came from Britain coming in and imposing it. And yes, it's clear following caste of minds that the British solidified the Um, the caste system as opposed to making it more mobile and there's not as many subcasts. But Louis DeMond was like, no, they actually, people organically formulate these things. Well, if you don't take that seriously and you just come up with some philosophy, well, then you're a fool. And the last thing I'll say, it's um, it's not that the language can be counter. I always like to say, um, kind of based on what Thomas Jefferson says that, you know, the um, the leaders of today need to be plowing the field while reading Ovid. Um, An aristocracy is the ruling class when they're kind of educated in the humanities, where the elites, they have the power, but they're not educated in these things. And so one of the things that seems very problematic is we have a movement from aristocracy to elites. And they're the ones making, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of them just follow basically game theory and they think all of their answers will be given to them by game theory dynamics. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, about that. The problem is, you know, your game theory- um, models anthropological, Yes, exactly. But there's a certain anthropological mm-hmm. assumption in your yeah. game theory yeah. dynamics that are very problematic. So no, I think, I think part of the horror is we've actually moved from Aristotle. Eros- you're always going to have rulers, right? You know that's just how you know, if you follow anthropology. The question is if it moves from uh aristocracy to elites, and then you get problems. I think unfortunately we may have more elites who are just following game theory. So it's a problem. Okay, I'm, I'm going yes, to cut I it off. Yes, I understand. Conversation. No, 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 this
0: is great. I mean, it, it, a good conversation is when that you, you you want that you don't want to finish because you have you can go on and. Ten other directions Indeed. so so thanks so much guys thank and, you um,
1: okay next year we do the same but over a beer right yeah
0: next year maybe, maybe we should <laughs> no, bring no, more, real life. All more alcohol into it but this is this is times of prohibition not ritual yeah we're prohibited by this flat screen and, and
6: we need prohibition because yeah, now we yeah. have a time limit this is good it works yeah, yeah, out yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. it's been a pleasure gentlemen thank okay. you very much happy, night, everybody.
1: happy new year thanks Happy, happy New Year, happy new year everybody. appreciate Cheers. it Cheers.